Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way, and that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Zinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. I'm here with Stephanie Stein in the HarperCollins offices. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. These Harper offices, which are a lot of glass and beautiful books, we have a whole Amelia Bedelia wall in this room, which is very exciting to me. These offices are really adorable. I'm a fan. Yeah, you have quotes on the walls. You have a lot of books in each little phone room. It's very cute. Yes, I think this is a little bit more organized than my office is, which <laughs> has a lot like of different piles of books, <laughs> um, many of which are overflowing their shelves. But Do they ever fall on you? My books fall on me sometimes. I have not experienced that here. That's happened to me at home, <laughs> where I have the same problem. It's definitely a trend. Do they get mad at you if your books fall on people? I think they would. I think the person it fell on would get really mad at you. <laughs> that would make sense. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got started in publishing and how you knew you wanted to work in publishing? As soon as I found out publishing was a thing that people could do as a career, I was 100% in, definitely wanted to do it. When I was a kid, I wanted to be a writer, but at the time, like I didn't realize that there was an entire team of people behind all of the books that I read, aside from the author. And so it wasn't until college, when I was looking into careers, that I actually figured that out in some way. I think I had literally just seen a job posting, and it occurred to me that like publishing houses were companies. <laughs> that hired people. And I was like, oh, that sounds amazing. So I decided I was going to get myself to New York somehow and get into the industry. I did a couple of internships at smaller publishers. I started out in the sort of publicity and marketing side of things. So I did a publicity internship at a very small coffee table press in Los Angeles when I was still in school uh, that did sort of design books and photography books and cool stuff like that. I bet um, they had gorgeous offices too, photos everywhere. That's yes, thing. it was that like sort of California industrial chic that oh, you picture. Oh, yeah, sort yeah. of like modern, like concrete <laughs> floors, like cool, colorful um, office furniture. Like they had some really fancy modern chairs uh, that were like actually comfortable but didn't look like they would be at all. <laughs> uh, so that was a fun experience um, and sort of confirmed that it was something I definitely wanted to do. And so after I graduated. Came to New York, did an internship at W.W. Norton in their trade division, also in publicity. And then sort of right as that was winding down, I got lucky enough to get my first job at Harper um, in marketing, also on the children's side, uh, which was a ton of fun and a great learning experience. And I sort of was having a great time, but the more I learned about the industry, the more I realized I wanted to get closer to the story and work on editorial development with authors and things like that. So when the opportunity arose, I was lucky enough to be able to transition into editorial here, working on pretty much exactly the same list of books. And that was fantastic. And I've been here ever since. It's so cool that you were able to see things from two different perspectives like that, though. The 
very same projects from both publicity and from editorial. It was, and it's been incredibly useful, and it continues to be incredibly useful in my day-to-day functioning as an editor. Just the sort of perspective that you get coming from marketing, the literal like day-to-day skills that I learned there, like writing copy. Like the first time I had to write flap copy as opposed to ad copy, I was like, what do you mean I have 250 words to explain what this <laughs> book is instead of two lines? Like it was constrained you know, very specific um, yeah. angle in marketing and in editorial, you get kind of many different ways to express yourself about a different book at different times in its life cycle. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, learning sort of how to identify what a book's audience is and learning how to identify what a good comparative title is and all of those things are things I still do every day. <laughs> so this is probably impossible, but is there a quick way to describe how to decide what a book's audience is? One of the things that helped me figure out how to identify the audience and describe the ideal reader, like when I'm walking into an acquisitions meeting and I need to make the case like who's going to buy this book like I think I always start with who owns the book next to this on the shelf like who already bought the next best thing compared to this and you know who who is that person what can I say to describe that person I think that's always where I start I like how you say next best thing because you're like this is the best this one obviously this one that I love (laughs) and then I'm working on is the best thing (laughs) I feel that way about all my books that's that's well that's how you should feel I mean it shouldn't be like yeah this is fine it'll hang out with some other books it'll be cool like them no every single one has to feel like it's the best Mm -hmm. it's not just it has to be good enough it has to be good enough and we love it in that way yeah I think that's the thing that sort of stood out to me the most as I was transitioning from marketing to editorial is the fact that you want as an editor since you do have some input into the projects you're acquiring at least at a trade publisher like you want your matchmaking eye to be very keen you want to be able to say not only is this book great, but I'm the right editor for it. Like, this is the right sort of working partnership. This is the right publishing partnership Mm -hmm. for this book. And, like, these are the reasons why. Um, So about how many people are in your acquisitions meeting? Between, like, 10 and 15, depending on the day and sort of the agenda. It's an intimidating meeting, especially when you're first starting out, because... When you first bring in a project, you're talking to your editorial team, and there are people whose tastes you tend to know very well um, because you have seen the things that they work on and the things that they've responded to in the past. When you walk into acquisitions, at least at our company, you're talking to the president and publisher and the head of sales and the head of finance and these people who, you know, sort of like hold your fate in their hands. And over time, you get to know them. But especially when you're a young editor starting out, it can be so intimidating. And so like, it feels so momentous every time you step into that room. Do you feel like you have to like roll in in a suit and like <laughs> I definitely dress up a little bit still for acquisitions meetings you want to feel confident and you definitely know why you're bringing that project in but you just any little bit helps I think I'm so glad I don't have to do that this one's terrifying Although you, on the agency side I think you have to do it on a smaller scale so many more times yeah but an email yeah that's true (laughs) that changes the game a little bit yeah knowing me I would just like knock over my coffee at the very beginning of you know pitching a book and that I'd just never recover (laughs) or you'd get like a pity signing be like oh well if you really if you really want to we feel bad so (laughs) I mean she did cry so (laughs) yeah so it must be really important (laughs) can you give us an idea of a typical day like do you get in at nine leave at eight 
one of the things that I love so much about editing is that there isn't necessarily a 100% typical day. Like some days I actually will be sitting at my desk editing a manuscript. Some days I will have meetings, you know, from morning until five o'clock. Like some days I get to like sit down and noodle with a piece of copy. And sometimes I'm having a big meeting with design. Sometimes I'm presenting a title at acquisitions or in a launch meeting where it's like the first time I get to tell the broader marketing and sales teams and everyone about a book. So there's, there's sort of something new every day, which I appreciate, but I will say like, yeah, usually it's set aside some time to answer emails, like set aside some time to do some content work, whatever it is, whether it's writing copy or editing or, you know, working on comments on a jacket mech or something like that. Um, And sometimes it's meetings and coordinating with other departments. There's just a lot going on. Yeah. So in your huge amounts of spare time, what do you do? (laughs) Sorry. What what is that? What is spare time? I love how everyone laughs when I ask that question. (laughs) No. Yeah. I do. I try to like engage different parts of my brain when I'm not at work. Um, I don't write anymore. I know that's like a thing that's becoming increasingly common as you see people juggling publishing careers and writing careers. Like I don't really do that because I like to sort of have something very different to occupy my time in my off hours um so I cook a lot I try to like get out and exercise a little bit I'm learning how to ice skate right oh, now oh cool in yeah. the summer in Chelsea Piers in the summer at Chelsea Piers which is a really great summer activity actually because you get to spend three hours in very 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 air-conditioned spaces that's so funny i tried hot yoga in the dead of winter last year and it was a great idea yeah like i grew up in southern california and i have always like wanted to be an ice skater um in different capacities like really? since i was a little girl so oh, i kind of like got did you used see to that, that the i Tanya movie i did <laughs> so good yeah it's really fun. They did that so well. I had no idea she went through all of that. I just remember as a kid, like, seeing her on TV and being like, what? Yeah, I didn't remember any of the factual information. So mm-hmm. I, like, talked to my mom about it because she remembered a lot of the details that had happened at the time. And, like, she her perspective on it was so different compared to mine. It was really <laughs> fascinating. But Yeah, I just remember her skating over to the judges with the broken shoelace mm-hmm. or something. And my mom was horrified. I'm like, what? What? Why? What? Why? <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) What would you do in an alternative universe with no publishing? I feel like this is always so hard to imagine because part of me recoils from the idea of a world where publishing is not a thing. Um, I would be living at the beach 100%. Which beach, though? Ooh, that is a tougher question. I I know. You have a lot of choices. Do you want a tropical beach? Do you want a Southern California beach? I want a Southern California beach, yeah. Are we like Santa Barbara, Santa Monica? What are. I think we're like Huntington Beach or like Redondo. Huntington Beach. Yeah, like I like those beach cities because they feel like kind of walkable and fun like it's a little tiny slice of the kind of thing you get in like a city like Boston or New York but at a beach with like a much different pace of life my friend and I rented a car and drove to Venice when I was there a couple weeks ago and they had these cute little electric scooters that you put your phone over and it unlocks them and then they go really fast you can just leave from wherever it's like city bikes except wherever you want to leave it because California I guess sure and um they're actually kind of hard to ride I almost took out a whole bunch of tourists I would definitely do that I think but I I loved that it was a city that like instead of cars it was these little like shareable electric scooters that go 25 miles an hour and people on cruiser bikes that are pink of course it was adorable yeah everyone seems so happy and chill yeah I'm sure you know Southern California has like its own very busy people and its own issues but yeah I wonder there's a chill there really is how do Southern Californians 
get a lot of stuff done. That's what I want to know about. Like, who are the super driven, super neurotic Southern Californians? I don't know. <laughs> and like, what? Because when I'm there, I feel like I'm constantly scanning for threats, and no one else is. But then I come back here, and everyone's scanning, so I'm like, I'm good. Everyone's it's, watching out for danger. It's, it's a fun. very different ethos. It is, and I think people spend so much time in their cars out there, which is a pro and a con like traffic is not a joke like Mm -hmm. it's definitely a huge problem but at the same time there's something kind of nice about having this private space that goes with you everywhere you go right and you can make it the right temperature you can blast your music and sing to it yeah no one knows no one's gonna judge you for your car Mm -hmm. karaoke like you can bring along like five different layers of clothing and not have to carry them with you it's like your purse on wheels it is it's amazing you can put your bike in it you can put your yoga stuff in it you can put your change of clothes in it and unlike new york where the only place you can yell and not bother people is the subway you can yell all you want in your car you can yes even at other people who cut you off in traffic which (laughs) definitely happened to me that summer that i interned at the publisher in la i was commuting from orange county where Mm -hmm. my mom lives and it was about an hour and 45 minutes each Ooh. way. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. Should it have actually been like 45? Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know. You know exactly. <laughs> You're like, I'll just get to work at 7. Yeah, it'll be fine. <laughs> oh, no. Well, while we're talking about Southern California, mm-hmm. you are from Southern California, we had a discussion about the word hella. I think this, like... The, the etymology of this word is pretty important. We should discuss. <laughs> okay, yeah. I don't think I know a lot about the origins of it. Like, you're the Northern California. Oh, I don't know so where it can tell me. I was you did. Oh, I, just, I just knew Northern Californians say it, and it was very confusing. And then I remember one time I told you that, like, my more innocent friends in high school would say hecka. Yeah, I actually just thought about you and that conversation because I was editing a book by an author who lives in Silicon Valley and she said it there too and she had a kid say hecka and I was like oh god is it really like is this a thing that they're saying <laughs> she was like yeah of course <laughs> unfortunately yeah no it's so funny it's one of those things that like I mean California is a huge state and there are you know some things that it all kind of has in common but there are a lot of cultural differences too and I think that's definitely one of them like it didn't by the time I left, it hadn't caught on in Southern California at all. Well, I feel like I'm, I'm glad they didn't divide the state in three. I'm glad that didn't happen. Um, but I feel like you could divide North and South by who says HECA. Yeah, that's where <laughs> you would really draw the line. I think we should take a survey. Southern California is like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> so I won't be changing my mind about HECA and HELA anytime soon. But what's something you've changed your mind about in your time in the industry? <laughs> Oh, man. Um, I think I've also changed my mind about that, too. Like, to each their own form of (laughs) self-expression, even though I won't adopt it anytime soon. Um, No, I think... Sort of similarly, I've definitely changed my mind about ebooks really? since I got into the industry. I think some of this was just being young and like, you know, I, I went through that phase that I think a lot of people went through where it's like, I don't like this thing, so it's not good. <laughs> I personally still really enjoy reading in print, especially mm-hmm. now that I read so many manuscripts for work in digital formats. Like, mm-hmm. I like sort of having the psychological separation. And it's like, when I'm reading something in print, it's probably for fun. Yes. It's just a different mode. It feels different. Mm-hmm. So I like that about it, um, along with sort of the tactile pleasures of reading a book in print. But I at love Deckle Edge. You cannot do Deckle Edge and E. Right. <laughs> Someone's got to come up with an alternative for that. I think in many areas of my life, I've evolved to kind of like, as long as the thing that you are enjoying doesn't hurt anybody, go, I will support you. And I feel that way about ebooks now, too. Like the, the way that works best for you to read, 
you should do that. Like, I don't want to be a snob I definitely have the same, like, why is anyone doing ebooks? This is stupid. But I did find a few small things I like about it. I like having as many books as I want on my phone at yes. any time. Um, I really like audiobooks. I've been carrying around a little Bluetooth speaker. My friend got one at the beach that's, like, sandproof, waterproof, everything-proof. So I have it for my audiobooks at night and my, like, shower music in the morning. Nice. Mornings are the worst. Glad we agreed on that. (laughs) But, yeah, I like audiobooks because I like hearing the author's voice and the intonation and, you know, being able to listen. So that's another digital form I'm I'm growing to like. Yeah, I'm a big fan of audio, um, which... I tend not to listen to as many books on audio as I do podcasts, but... What are your favorite podcasts? Oh, man. (laughs) Um, I listen to a lot of hockey podcasts because, again, I sports and (laughs) ice skating nerd. Um, But I listen to 99% Invisible, which I really enjoy. Um, They cover such a huge range of subjects. You kind of never know what you're going to get. But they always sort of come at it with a really interesting angle. Um, I like Song Exploder a lot, too. What's that? Which is this podcast where the host has a different musician on every time, and they sort of break down one of their songs and explain how it came to be, sort of like what the creative process That's is so like. Cool. It's so cool. And then sort of like at the end of the show, they play the whole song like for you to just enjoy and sort of apply the things that you just learned. Um, I don't. So it's just close enough to the creative process in our industry that it still feels useful and still feels like a break. Yeah, it does. It's like I don't. It's funny, I'm not a huge music person in general. Like, I like listening to music as much as the next person, but I don't necessarily make it a huge part of my life. Like, I don't go to a lot of concerts. But something about that show, like, just listening to musicians, it does. It feels different enough from the creative process that I'm familiar with to be refreshing, but it feels familiar in another way. Well, I've noticed people in publishing really like TV. It's similar, but it's different. Yeah, watching TV with my publishing friends, which I watched The Bold Type with one of them, is like... (laughs) hilarious because I think we would frustrate anybody who didn't work in a creative profession mm-hmm. to watch TV with because yeah. we're always making predictions and sort of like making comments yes. and making you know constructive criticism and all of this stuff and I do feel like that's a side effect of working in our industry though like you're not going to be surprised by a plot nearly as often no but then when it happens, you appreciate it so much more, I think. Yeah. I, like, recently, uh, like, last year, I went back and reread all seven Harry Potter books for the first time. And it was the first time that I had done such a thing since I started working in children's publishing. And so I read the first book, which I know is not a lot of people's favorites, but I was just amazed by how, like, tight and sort of well-constructed that book is. Like, there's really no wasted space. Everything becomes significant later on. Like, the amount of world-building and explanation that gets packed into that very small package, like, it's a short book, especially compared to the later ones, was astounding. And just sort of realizing how much my eye had changed, I think, Mm -hmm. was really eye-opening. And I think, yeah, that definitely applies to other media, too. I also feel like when I'm impressed with somebody doing something in a book, then I am really impressed because I know how hard it is. I'm listening to that book, uh, Tell Me Lies. Have you seen that book? Mm-hmm. You probably Like, the cover is just like, tell me lies, tell me lies, tell me lies. Okay. And it's dual perspective, um, a sociopath and the woman falling in love with him. It's all internal conflict, and yet I am so 
fascinated by it. And it's so interesting. I want someone to take that book and like map out the arcs of like, we know this about this character. We know this about this character. How did she do it? How did she keep us interested? And it's just a relationship going bad for years. And yet I'm like, huh? What? What's (laughs) going to happen next? So much tension. I know exactly what's going to happen next. But I think about that a lot in relation to genres that have sort of very strict tropes or very strict requirements for like what the reader is going to expect. Like romance, for example, where it's like, you know that those characters are going to end up in a happily ever after situation. Mm -hmm. And so working within that constraint is really interesting. Like a writer who can keep you totally captivated. It's like you're turning the page being like, are they going to kiss? Are they going to kiss? Of course they're going to kiss. But if you can recreate that feeling. they're all going to die on Mars. Right? But if you can still elicit that feeling from your reader, even, you know, when the package is very predictable, I think that's, that's something special. Tell us the story of the first time you saw one of your books for sale. The very first time I saw a book that I'd worked on in a store was with the Warriors books by Aaron Hunter, which is this extremely long-running series that I think I just missed when I was a young reader. Um, I had never sort of come into contact with it. But now, like, when I see sort of like kids getting into publishing this year like they their eyes light up when you mention warriors like it's it's something that had a huge impact on kids who are probably like you know three or four years younger than I am um but I went to a bookstore I went to this tiny bookstore in the Berkshires when I was there with my then partner and his grandparents and saw the entire repackage that we had just done in like this beautiful like you know pride of place shelving position and this little girl came in and saw this and went ballistic really that's so great yeah like she was so excited she had no idea that they were getting new covers or anything and she wanted to buy so many of them and of course her parents were like okay we can we can manage some of this but not all of it and just listening to her like sort of talk to her parents about how excited she was like that's so nice yeah it was the most wonderful experience so i was really excited about that um and then the next time that I sort of like the next first that sticks out for me is when I saw the first book that I had independently acquired and edited on sale at the Barnes and Noble that I used to go to when I was a kid Aww. back in Southern California. It's like my mom wanted to go and buy a copy of this book that I had worked on when I was home for the holidays. And That's so we so went. Nice. Yeah, so we went to the Barnes and Noble that we used to go to to buy books when I was a kid. And there it was on the shelf. And I was so excited. And she was so excited. And I like held it together long enough to like take the picture that she wanted. <laughs> and then I totally started crying in the car in the parking lot. Aww. It was great. Yeah, it's it's an unreal feeling. So that's something a lot of listeners probably don't know. A lot of editors co-acquire and then acquire. Yeah. So like the Warriors repackage was one of the first things that I worked on when I transitioned from marketing to editorial. And like, I can't take credit for starting that series, obviously, as it started 14 years ago. Um, but it was definitely a really fun thing to sort of cut my teeth on and sort of learn a lot of the processes that go into editing a book and sort of the the many different pieces of a book's life cycle. Um, and then I felt, you know, because I'd had that experience and because I'd had the experience editing behind my boss on a bunch of her books and things like that, I felt very prepared to take on solo projects by the time I did, which was great. I think, yeah, one of the things people don't realize about editing in particular is how much of a learn-on-the-job 
kind of experience it is. Like there are a lot of things that you just have to kind of learn by doing. Mm -hmm. And so one of the the fun parts I think of being an assistant is getting to read all of your boss's editorial notes and kind of add your own thoughts and sort of see how your perspectives are the same and different and learn all of the different parts of the process that way. There was a great thread on Twitter that I was looking at before I dealt with your formidable security. (laughs) Um, Hey, no one ever tried to break into HarperCollins. You can't do it. One of the things that I was reading is Molly O'Neill has this great thread about how one of the cool things about publishing is that with every client, with every situation, it's different. Mm -hmm. It's not one size fits all. And I think that's such a wonderful almost life-giving way of talking about it because it's not just okay we put you into this formula and out pops this you know predictable product it's we have this relationship we have this day all these factors are coming together and we're just all doing what is best in that one creative moment yeah each book is different and in some ways it feels like you are reinventing the wheel every time it can be a thing that creates a lot of work Um, and makes people feel a little hectic sometimes but at the same time it's a beautiful process like you get to actually collaborate on something new and different with every book that you work on and we're dealing with people in a world that's constantly changing so everyone's constantly changing we all feel different every day we all have different crazy things happening in the news every day maybe it's a rainy day and everyone comes in and they're like you know dragging their umbrella and mad like I feel like all these different factors are going to affect how we work because it is a creative process where everything we're experiencing is kind of brought to the table yeah and one of the fun things about approaching the editorial process and in particular with a different collaborator every time is figuring out what each author needs from me if I had my druthers I think like a lot of millennials I would pretty much never be on the phone Um, (laughs) but I have a couple authors who really just love to talk things out on the phone Mm -hmm. and have an editorial phone call and so that's what we do like it works so well for them that you know I'm definitely willing to like hop on the phone if that helps you're an editorial rock star it seems like every single person who gets a written critique from you is thrilled (laughs) Why don't you tell us more about your approach and how you got so good at these? It's funny because my process for approaching a critique where I'm often not getting the entire manuscript, I'm getting like the first 10 pages or sometimes the first 50 pages is a little bit different from my process approaching a full manuscript editorial project. Um, I think usually when I have the first draft or at least the first draft to me, of a full manuscript. I'm not getting into line edits. I'm not sort of digging into each moment in the manuscript. I'm doing more big picture stuff, more, you know, developmental stuff on like the level of the whole plot or a character arc or pacing in the middle third, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I'm doing a shorter critique, I do both of those things because I feel like I have the leisure to get to that when it's 10 pages in a way that I don't necessarily when it's 400 pages. (laughs) Um, So that's fun for me um, and I think helpful to authors too, or at least (laughs) I hope so. Uh, It would seem to be because you've taken the time to say something. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Some of them seem to be very satisfied, so that's good. Um, So yeah, like I usually... I'll read the pages. I'll do like one really fast read without writing anything down, just to kind of like get the overall sense of it. Um, and then I will read 
and make comments on the pages while kind of like jotting stuff down on the side that I'm noticing that are bigger patterns or, you know, sort of bigger picture elements that I think need to be addressed. And then I'll write up a couple of paragraphs, um, usually on the side as like, you know, I left you a bunch of comments in the manuscript, but here also are some bigger picture things that I noticed that couldn't really be addressed, like, on a specific paragraph or a line, but you should probably consider. Mm-hmm. And then that's sort of the, the approach that I go with. I think that makes sense, though, because sometimes it's the stuff that's extremely specific and the stuff that's extremely big picture that really help a writer finally see, oh, okay, this is how this other person is seeing it. This is how I'm seeing it. How can I get my vision closer to what they wanted? Yeah, absolutely. And I also, like, one of the things that I love about these critiques in particular is I get the pitch a lot of the times with it, and so I can kind of judge, like, this is what you are going for, Mm -hmm. that is not what I saw, what can we do, or what can I suggest, or what questions can I ask you to kind of put you a little bit closer to what you were aiming for. I definitely feel like I've gone to in-person conferences, and they give me just the first 10 pages, and I was like, I don't know what genre this is. Yeah. Like, I don't know, like, what age group this is supposed to be for. Like, I don't really know. Like, some of that is helpful to know, like, what advice I should be giving you. Are the ones where you're like, is this supposed to be funny or I'm a terrible person? (laughs) (laughs) I haven't had that experience recently. I have the experience, especially because I work in middle grade and YA, where something will feel very much caught between those two age groups. Mm -hmm. And I will have to say, sometimes it seems clear to me which one it really feels at home in. And so I can point them in that direction. Sometimes it really doesn't. Mm -hmm. And so I have to be like, look, I don't know what you necessarily want to do with this. Here's what I noticed. If you did want to go in this direction, you would do X, Y, and Z. If you wanted to go in the other direction, you would need to do A, B, and C. Mm -hmm. Like figure out kind of what what calls to you from those recommendations. And I think that's a good sign as to like what you actually need to do. But I think it's, it's a fun, you know, it's a short window into most of these manuscripts, but I think it tells you so much just from seeing that short number of pages. Well, and as an agent, I often don't read past the first 10 pages if they don't grab me. I wish I had time to. I don't. You know, every time I open a new manuscript submission from an agent, I hope that I'm going to get sucked in And sometimes it doesn't quite happen, and that's sometimes no fault of the manuscripts. It's just I'm not the right reader for it, like Mm -hmm. I'm not the right editor for it. Um, But I think, you know, I want to save that reading time for things that really are pulling me in and that I think I feel a connection with. I don't feel bad about not finishing published books anymore. No, not at all, and I used to. That's definitely, (laughs) speaking of things I've changed my mind on, I used to be total completionist, which extended, like, I used to collect a lot of things. I used to, like, do all the achievements and all the video games that I played, and I used to finish every book that I started, and I Did you finish every video game? Did you beat every video game? No. (laughs) (laughs) But mostly that was, like, I got frustrated enough to give up. It was not, like, me deciding to abandon. <laughs> now I abandon all things that I am not enjoying unless they are like critical to my life. That's actually really smart. I think someone was telling me recently that everything in your life should either bring you money or love. That sounds so simple and yet it kind of makes sense. Yeah, I think it takes you a long time to realize that in a way that feels real. So if you'd had all the money in the world and all the time in the world, what would you make? Is this funny because this is going to be the most editor answer to this question in the world <laughs> uh, and very me um, I tend to be the kind of person who identifies with things that are very meta um, but honestly I think my answer would be 
a fund or some kind of project space that helped other people <laughs> create the things that they really thought oh, were needed. Oh, that's cool. Because, like, I don't necessarily have one thing that I want to spend Google-level money on every day, but I think a lot of other people have really amazing ideas that I would want to be able to throw money at. Like, I see that all the time now. I'm just like, I wish I had more than, like, $5 to give you for this really cool campaign. Mm-hmm. So I think being like an incubator that was not necessarily like a venture capital firm based on profit, but was just like, I think this is a cool idea. I'm going to give you money. Like, I think that would be really fulfilling for me and hopefully help the world. It makes me think of like what a publishing incubator would look like. Ooh, It's funny because it's kind of what a publishing house is in some ways. Like we are going to give an author the money to live on while they write this book and hope that a return comes to us that, you know, makes us both financially happy. Um, so you're kind of venture capitalists for authors. Kind of. <laughs> there are definitely some sort of ways the system shakes out. That but you give them model. a lot more in terms of guidance than I imagine most venture capital recipients receive. I'm not sure. I feel like venture capital is this wild world where depends on the individual personality of the person with all of this money. It probably does. Yeah. I have all these fantasies involving venture capital. I feel like curation is going to be a big part of the future too, because there are so many people creating so much amazing content in so many areas. Mm -hmm. So if you could just be like, if I could just go to Stephanie recommends the following and I was a venture capitalist, I'd be like, yeah, Stephanie's right. Stephanie's got good taste. I'm going to send like my bazillion dollars to like all these people. That would be amazing. (laughs) Please, everyone listen to me. Send your bazillions of dollars to the places I tell you. <laughs> like, everyone, go to Stephanie's Bazillion I'm buying that domain right now. <laughs> On the other side of things, tell us about one of your memories of your early days in New York or the industry. I've told this story to so many people and I love it and I'm just going to tell it again um, Please do. to be immortalized in this format. Yay. Um, so I have not had very many celebrity sightings in New York. But the one that I remember the most is the magical experience that was Shaquille O'Neal being my publishing kind of like fairy godmother um, in this <laughs> kind of hilarious run-in. So I was interning at W.W. Norton at the time, and I had my very first like full-time publishing job interview at Harper, which was about 10 blocks up the street at the time, and I was like hustling from my internship to my interview. Like Obviously, as an intern, it's expected that you're job hunting, and so my bosses were like super supportive, and we're like, go! we'll be thinking of you like walk, walk up the street and I almost literally ran into Shaq on the street which like how did I not see him from a mile away I was in a hurry I was very nervous like almost literally ran into him somehow got through like his entourage and like and you're also literally... not that tall no so I'm I feel five like... foot three so this was a dramatic <laughs> height difference for sure and I was like what is he doing here but I didn't have time to think about that or to like really do anything so I just like kind of said oh hi and then walked away um and then I looked up later what he was doing there and he was actually there for a book event for the book that he had just published and I was like that is unreal um and then of course that turned out to be the job that I got at Harper and so I remain convinced that he's my good luck charm and that the fact that he was here for a book event on this day when I needed to like walk up those 10 blocks for a job related reason was some kind of sign from the universe 
I feel like we should tag him in this post. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> like little did you know. Yeah, this girl who, like, was, and I was literally, like, a Lakers fan when I was a kid, and I used to play basketball in middle school, so I was like, this seems like a nice, neat moment that the universe is saying to me, like, you're in the right place, you're doing a good thing. Tell us the story of a really fun day or night you've had in New York City. Um, so I think this is one of the areas my California chill comes back out because a lot of my most fun New York days were just hanging out with my friends on a rooftop in Brooklyn. Like Rooftops are cool. Rooftops are very cool. Especially in Brooklyn, you get the Manhattan skyline, mm-hmm. which you don't get when you're in Manhattan in quite the same way. So it's different. Um, I, I do just tend to love like walking around a neighborhood or like experiencing like a neighborhood restaurant that my friend recommends because they live there and I've never been to like this 10 square block area before like I think that's one of my favorite parts of living here one of the other things I love and I've had a couple of days like this where you just kind of like keep running into people you know yeah which doesn't seem like it should be possible in a city with this many people in it but I had one day where I was like doing the tourist thing on the High Line which is this elevated park in Chelsea on like these old railway tracks and it's a tourist attraction so it shouldn't but be but it's so cool yeah it's very cool and so like maybe it shouldn't be as unexpected that you like run into people there all the time but like I ran into a friend of mine from high school who I used to work with on our school newspaper who doesn't live here and was like visiting the city wow. on vacation and I had no idea that she was going to be here and I ran into her on the highline from 3,000 miles away yeah like just in the age of social media like the fact that I like didn't know she was going to be here it wasn't like coordinated it just felt like such a serendipitous moment that I think being here affords you sometimes in a I nice feel way like New York is really good at serendipity I think it it likes to remind you that you're in this like magical place where many roads meet every day like it likes to give you a moment that keeps you like invested in the city and the idea of the city every so often so if you were a superhero what powers would you have oh teleportation hands down I think I have a lot of wanderlust that I don't necessarily get to indulge because airfare is expensive and time consuming, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think I would love to just be able to like pop around the world on a moment's Mm -hmm. notice. And I would also love to like be able to get home to California without it taking five hours and be able to sort of like be at my friend's place on the Upper East Side when it's pouring down rain outside and just like magically be in my living room two seconds later. Think of all the friends you could have all around the world and think of all the food you could have from all around the world. The food, honestly, is like a big motivator. It's a really big motivator. Yes, that's like the first thing I look for when I travel these days is not necessarily like what site do I need to see, it's what restaurant do I need to eat at. That's actually a really good way of sorting that all out because there's so much to see, but... Only so much you're excited about eating. Yes. And, like, only so many things you can eat in a day, whereas I think there are many, many things, depending on how fast you want to walk or how fast you want to move, that you can see. Or what kind of teleportation you can do. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Like, can you carry stuff or not carry stuff? Mm. You know, that's that's an important question. These are very important world-building questions. I'm happy you asked. (laughs) That's true. You do work on a a lot of sci-fi fantasy, so world-building is very important. Yes. (laughs) So what's your number one tip for writers? I'm sure you've heard this before, but it's definitely read. And it's read both widely and like within the field that you want to target for whatever you're writing. Like I think there's really no substitute for that. There's really 
no substitute for like sort of observing something that's executed really well. I think there's something really beautiful about being able to like refresh your creative coffers that way and then there's also a lot of technical stuff that you can learn just from reading Mm -hmm. um and especially in the kids world you know I talked a little bit earlier about the way that you can target a specific age group and sort of the way that sometimes something doesn't fit within that audience I think reading can help you pinpoint what you should be aiming for in a way that almost nothing else can like I can tell you or I can try to describe what a middle grade voice sounds like for as long as I have breath in my lungs but nothing really compares to reading and seeing that executed and showing you yeah exactly (laughs) like show don't tell all over again it's like sometimes I just need to point you like oh go read Kate DiCamillo and come back to me and then we can talk about what you saw so if you could assign people some reading, do you have anything in mind? I don't know. I think it's so different depending on what you're trying to do. There are books that I recommend just generally, but then you also really get a lot out of reading something that's close to what you're trying to achieve. One book that's really stood out to me recently, which most impressed me and that I think everyone should read, is actually not going to be an unfamiliar name to a lot of you, but Strange the Dreamer by Lainey Taylor, which is incredibly ambitious and cool and different and interesting and kind of breaks a lot of rules that I think most people would point you to if you just ask them, like, how do I write a YA novel? Um, But it does it all with aplomb and just, like, so skillfully. I think that's a book that I point a lot of people to who don't necessarily read a ton of YA. It's just a very good example of a lot of things that work really well, but on the face of it probably shouldn't. Like, that's sort of my favorite book to recommend to people. Like, any book that breaks a lot of rules and gets away with it. So where can people find you online? I'm at Stephalie Stein, S-T-E-P-H-L-Y Stein, which is a play on my middle name. So my middle name is Lee, L-E-I-G-H, which is dorky, but... I established it early and I've kind of stuck with it. That's pretty much my like online presence as far as, you know, professional stuff goes. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And anyone out there who wants to book a written critique with Stephanie, you can find her at manuscriptacademy.com slash Stephanie Stein. Fancy. So fancy. <laughs> we are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our First Pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with First Pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to Manuscript Academy. Dot com.